and welcome to another Scotsway podcast and today I'm joined by Rog Glass to talk about the second International Alistair Gray Conference which will be on on the 16th and 17th of June later this year but first of all hello Rog. Hi Ali lovely to see you. It's been a while hasn't it since we've just, done this kind of thing. Just a wee while <laughs> uh, anyone that knows me knows I'm incredibly sentimental so anybody that I used to see around more regularly um, you know I'm only ever a hop skip and a jump from tears so let's try and keep it as cold as possible okay absolutely okay but it's lovely to see you again so tell us about the conference your role in it and how people can get involved okay so my role in brief is that I'm the convener of the conference Um, for those that don't know my connection to Alistair 20 years plus ago he was my tutor when I was starting out writing um, I then worked as his secretary for a few years. That was a huge part of my writer's education and also influenced the way that I see the world around me, my ethos and my beliefs. Those things have really stayed with me. And since then, I've in one way or another always been working in Alistair Gray's studies. So I wrote Alistair's only biography, which is partly a personal series of portraits and partly a walk through the life and work. And since then, I've been looking at other ways to be able to develop research around Alistair's work. Um, perhaps we'll come to that in more detail mm-hmm. later what the nature of that is but um, 10 years ago there was a wee conference in uh, Brest in France um, a, g- a gathering of the grey nerds uh, led by Professor Camille Marfedi and um, uh, I was asked to do the keynote speech there and I met a whole bunch of people at that conference that I realised were really passionate about Alistair's work mm-hmm. that I just had no cause to stumble across before and this is really exciting uh, a book followed that conference and over the 10 years or so that followed, Alistair's reputation developed in all sorts of really interesting ways. And um, 10 years later, the idea is to do the same thing again, but on a much bigger scale and in the writer's landscape, right. you know, in a way that could is as Glasgow as Glasgow can be. So that's my role as the convener, that's the basics. And uh, registration uh, is open. It's a couple of days and a couple of nights of work and play and... Uh, plenty of social and it's open to absolutely everyone absolutely everybody that's the the, the fundamental uh, principle of the thing is that it's designed to encourage enjoyable conversation and interrogation and celebration of Alistair's work across folk from different backgrounds so it's like a conference that's not a conference really if you want to come along sit on your bum for 13 hours ask a question that's really not a question and then talk about your own research you're at the wrong place um, <laughs> that uh, sounds familiar. Uh, yeah, that's it. Like, like a few that I've been at, but it, it's going to include a lot of walking around the city, being around Alistair's murals. There is an exhibition looking at his artwork. People will be able to chat to each other, and we're particularly interested in developing more conversation between literary artists and visual artists, and critics, and fans, and people who have just always loved the work. You would like to spend some time thinking and talking about it. I mean, there is a huge amount of affection for Alistair mm. internationally, but that is particularly strong in Glasgow. So I can already see in folk that are starting to sign up for the conference that actually it's not, uh, you know, all professors from Belgium. <laughs> uh, it's much more likely to be somebody who grew up knowing Alistair's work, coming across him directly as a human being, perhaps, mm-hmm. and is interested in learning more about it. Um it's really important that particularly after this huge imbalance that was there for most of Alistair's life where the art was, the visual art was seen as a kind of small uh, room in the house of his rep- 
ever growing literary yeah. reputation that now that is starting to balance out a lot more yeah it's really important that we start looking at the work and considering how the word and picture will always in conversation with each other you can only really do that when there are visual artists in the room as well um so yeah that's the that's the spirit of the thing really so it's interesting I mean, it's interdisciplinary but it's also interactive so you know there is walks and we'll talk a little bit more yeah details off yeah that. perhaps we'll come to that but yes it's really important to me that people get to socialize get to talk to each other and to share what their knowledge is we'll have people who are specialists in other interesting scottish writers from that particular period as well we can learn from them i'm certain of it uh hopefully it'll be a social thing for lots of people who haven't been able to do a social yeah. thing for a long time um uh, there is an online option as well and people can come online if they're more comfortable that way i think that's really important for access all sorts of reasons covid or non-covid but for those that are able to come to glasgow i think a big part of the appeal is standing an hour and more underneath the auditorium chatting to folk yeah. as much as it is listening to what people have to say about their interpretations of alistair's work just think that's central and there's two titles in, in the uh, description of the conference you've got making imagined objects and then across space and form so can you unpick those yeah ones? definitely so the main um title of the conference is making imagined objects alistair can always considered himself to be a and this was his words he thought of himself as a maker of imagined objects and as always he was very careful with the words that he chose that yeah. was no accident the framing of that uh, is purposeful because it includes both visual art and literary art and combinations of the both um, so rather than any other terminology, that's what he went with. Um, and we wanted something that was about craft um, in the title. Uh, across space and form is the theme, really. So what we were trying to encourage when we put out a call for papers, and when I say papers, this was like very, very broad. We've had lots of creative responses as well, and I can talk about that too. Mm -hmm. But when we put the call out, many of the themes that we suggested that people could write something about to present at the conference were really about how across space and across form Alistair's work in practice over 65 years developed. Um, it means that we are sort of avoiding looking at any one individual thing in isolation, which with, in, with Alistair is counterproductive anyway, because as you well know, he was forever recycling, yeah. reappropriating, you know, using old texts and new ones, repeating things. He has an unusually consistent political outlook, uh, artistic practice, like the way that he made things, those things were unchanging. Um, and it was hugely expansive. So I don't think it would be useful anyway to just try and see one tiny little piece of his work yeah. as if it is divorced from everything else. So we, we thought that Across Space and Form made that case in brief, really, we're encouraging to try and encouraging people to try and think broadly about what that means. And you've uh, linked up with uh, quite a few partners for the conference. Can you tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, well, that's partly about uh, how loyal folk uh, in Glasgow are to Alistair and make, make it quite easy. That's not anything that I've done or anyone mm. else in the team. It's just places that are associated with Alistair want to help. So we're starting under the Oranmore Auditorium Night Sky, which is, in my view, Alistair's greatest statement of democratisation, putting ordinary Glaswegian folk in the centre of the picture, mm -hmm. sticking them right in the middle of the Garden of Eden. That was what he was all about. Uh, and um, and that is 
Scotland's biggest free indoor artwork. It was the greatest work of his life and included lots and lots of figures and emblems from previous murals that had been knocked down when he was an unknown artist. That embracing um, interracial Adam and Eve was there in the 1960s in his first major green-haired mural that was knocked down. So that's a perfect place to start uh, the conference. So Oren Moore is a partner. Um, we're going to have Nicole Wheatley, who's a great artist in mm -hmm. his own right, who worked as a collaborator with Alistair for many years on Oren Moore and on the Hillhead subway. Yeah. Um, and uh, other partners include the Alistair Gray Archive, run by Saoirse Dallas, who's done extraordinary things for Alistair's legacy, really made his artistic reputation, because he never had an artistic agent until he was in his 70s. Yeah. So when Saoirse took him on, you'd have to go, ah, right, well, maybe we should try and find that painting I left on a train on the way to Edinburgh in 1981, or whatever it was. <laughs> Thousands of things to find. And yeah, what an undertaking yeah, to see. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Anyway, so Saoirse set up this wonderful archive at the Whiskey yeah. Bond where Alistair's old living space has been recreated right down to his furniture, all of his books, all of his paintbrushes and his sketches and everything. Um, so they're a partner too. Um, we'll also be visiting those places as yeah. well for those wow. that want to go. So all the way through the day, instead of having, you know, 25 panels and th three things happening at the same time, we've focused the amount of talks that there are. Um, they're all fascinating talks, but in between all of them, we're active. We're moving about the city, whether it's going through Garscube Links and then up to the Alistair Gray Archive or starting at Oren Moore, going through the Hillhead subway, coming to Strathclyde where we're hosting the main conference. Um, the Hunterian Museum is another partner. So exactly. this will be a new exhibition of Alistair's visual artwork. And there we're launching Juana Adcock's new pamphlet. It's being published with Hapsal Thierry. And that's a creative response to Lanark. So that for me is an example of how we're using these partners to be able to break the conference out of all of these, in my view, not very useful traditional bounds. It doesn't mean that it can't be interrogative, it can't be a genuinely inquiring, that's really important. But it should also be fun, it should yeah. also be social, and it should also be creative. And again, that thing about perhaps still most people knowing him for his writing. Um, what a great way of discovering the other side. It's Hopefully. Kind of um, and there'll be folk coming from all over the world that know Alistair Gray's books but have never seen a mural yeah. uh, in person. So hopefully that will charge the, the atmosphere as well. Um, yeah, I'm really hoping so. And I don't know if you can, but can you tell us who's going to be appearing? Or a little bit about who may be um, appearing? I, I can say that the, the whole of the lineup is um, uh, is available online now. Oh, it's right. not a, okay, it's not a secret. secret. Okay. It's not a secret, no, but um, I can maybe give a couple of uh, examples of, of mm -hmm. uh, papers. So uh, Anita Sullivan, who's a very well-known radio dramatist, um, is working with Kat Rolly, who's actually Alistair's niece. Oh, yeah. but who did a series of digital podcasts with Alistair late in his life and interviews with him. Um, and so it's important to say that you know, the Grey family are part of what yeah. we're doing as well. Um, they're doing something on Alistair as a potential digital native. You know, how, in what ways was he uh, working in an old-fashioned way that could not possibly be recreated by digital? And in what ways did he use others in order to get access to digital technologies? Uh, which, as an ex-secretary, uh, you might, you, yeah, you might be interested in. Yeah. But um, so that's an example of something that's collaborative, mm -hmm. that's inquiring so between somebody that is from a purely creative background 
and somebody who has a lifelong closeness to Alistair but has also got an, you know, an intellectual interest in the work um, how we're going to try and make sure that the conference is like, accessible but like, fresh it includes primary research it's all about sort of developing what I call grey studies yeah. um, and there's definitely enough uh, interest around the world yeah. in that you know, we were supposed to run this conference last summer yes um, there was this thing called COVID that happened uh, you may have heard of it and instead of doing it in person we did an online symposium where mm. we, we had a mixture of academic papers and creative commissions we commissioned somebody who used to work with Alistair as an artist to do a, a new series of jewellery responding to Lanark wow. and we asked Juan Adcock who'd written about Mexican snakes and her own culture and adapt that into something that was responding to the Garden of Eden in Lanark um, so it was creative and critical and um, we just did it free and online and we had 220 people from 17 countries mm-hmm. you know sometimes people in Scotland think that because Alistair is mm-hmm. so closely associated with Glasgow that nobody could possibly be interested that just couldn't be further from the truth there is real genuine and meaningful interest um, and the more that we can encourage folk from different generations different places different cultures to respond to the work and to give new perspectives on it then the more interesting it will be, I think. And so are you expecting quite a lot of people to come over from overseas to the conference as well? It's, I, I think so. Yeah, I mean, from, from those that are registered so far, it's much more international than I, I won't say feared, but I, I wondered whether maybe yeah. most people that want, would want to be there in person yeah. would be from Byers Road or yeah. something, you know. Where else he used to walk up and down with his wee rucksack for years. But actually it's incredibly international and all of that is... It's just really encouraging to see. There's one thing that you get with it, say, the creative commissions that shows, I think, how this sort of thing doesn't just need to be like a worship of somebody that's not there anymore. It can be something where we can learn about what a particular artist's approaches were and then use them in our own ways. Mm-hmm. Juan Adcock is a great example of that. So let me just give you what that is in, in brief. So she did, we, had, we commissioned her at Strathclyde to do it was between Strathclyde and the Grey Archive. We commissioned her to do a poem responding to this particular painting, Eden and After, mm-hmm. um, which is described in Lanark. And it was for the symposium last year. And like all great poets, when asked to give one, they give 17. <laughs> <laughs> so Juana was inspired to write this much more detailed series. Now, and that's going to be published this year, and that wouldn't have existed mm. if it hadn't come out of Alistair's work. But if you read it, there's nothing obvious in it that makes it seem like it's not about Lanark. She is independently bringing her own intelligence, culture, background, approaches to this thing. Yeah. She's responding to an element of Alistair's work. And what matters to me about that model is the fact that, and not everybody knows this, but so much of Alistair's own practice was a creative response to something else that already existed. You know, the idea that he invented Scotland out of nothing overnight while you know having a wee scratch mm-hmm. uh, is just nonsense so many of the illustrations in his major books are modern scottish versions of uh, hundreds of year old engravings mm-hmm. like hobbs leviathan yeah. being one as i'm sure you know um, and so many of his stories were responses to existing stories um, so that model of instead of encouraging a kind of hero worship, which I'm not sure there's much use in, yeah. but doing something that's inquiring and interrogative on one hand, but also creative on the other, that's a model I'm really interested in developing. So we just asked Michael Pedersen 
from Noiriki mm-hmm. to uh, we also commissioned him jointly Strathclyde and, uh, and the archive and he did a he came up with a poem called um, uh, the armchair monologues which was about Alistair's old chair mm-hmm. so from the perspective of the chair uh, you know all dry skin and hairs and all that sort of stuff um, it was utterly transformative it wasn't dependent on it being about Alistair as a human being or his work it was independent of it and now it's Michael's poem and I've yeah. seen him perform it and it's wonderful uh, but it's a, an example of how that model can work you know we're not creating out of the void none of us are yeah. and that's okay yeah um, that's um, that's my take on it anyway. because that's central to Alistair as well wasn't he that's exactly what he was doing he was responding to himself as well as his surroundings and everything that he'd learned up to that point and never stopped learning exactly yeah I couldn't agree more so tell us a little bit more about your relationship with Alistair. You mentioned that you're a biographer mm-hmm. and you worked uh, alongside him as well uh, and you were taught by him as well. So, you know, how, how was that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this could be the longest podcast uh, we ever do. I can, just, I can, can give you a brief answer. version. I yeah, can give yeah. you a brief version. The first thing to say was that it was transformative for my life yeah. and that I'm a great believer that um, having access to people who already do the thing that you want to do mm-hmm. is transformative. I am extremely hippy-dippy, peace, love, and understanding. And I make no apologies for it. And seeing the model of how Alistair not just worked but treated other human beings was a model for me about how to be an adult. Mm-hmm. I met him so young, um, and I didn't know my grandparents on one side, and on the other side, one died quite early. And I've moved away from... The place where I grew up, um, any listeners will be able to quickly spot. I was not born in Glasgow, but I moved here when I was about eighteen, um, and this has been more home to me than anywhere else. So I was still working out who I was and what I wanted to be, and and working with Alistair gave me a really strong rooted sense of that, and it's given me joy ever since to be involved in it, in things to do with him. He was an extremely bad tutor, and he would say so. So he, I was writing my first novel while I was on the Emlet, which was then joint between Glasgow and Strathclyde mm-hmm. and had so many of the major writers in Scotland at that time there. Um, from Strathclyde there was the first black professor in literature Zoe Wickham from South Africa who's been in Glasgow a long time, often marginalised and forgotten and shouldn't be and then there was the obvious three headed professor that uh, created a lot of drama <laughs> so James Kelman, Alistair Gray, Tom Leonard and Tom stayed for many years after that mm-hmm. but Alistair was only there for a couple of years and I was his tutee over that time he would write over your words with a tipex and then you know t- cut out little bits of paper and then write on top of them and write and rewrite and rewrite and then just give you something back that was in his style he wasn't a he wasn't a teacher of that kind so I was sort of learning to write fiction independently but what I got from working with him was seeing how a writer should behave and because you've probably heard this line many a time Ali but because he always said I always assumed a computer was a more complicated version of a typewriter and I never learned to use one of those so he was always dependent on folk like us Mm. who would sit there while he would hover behind on one shoulder going like this with his finger round in a circle and saying, you know, move that word forward, actually delete it. No, actually put it back in again. Um, And working with him over three or four years, just having to sit there and watch that was an amazing education. I wrote his biography out of opportunism. Uh, Alistair always said he believed that if there's something that doesn't exist and you would like it to exist, 
even if you've got selfish reasons, that's okay. Um, and so I asked him if I could write his biography and I had this idea really early on of how I was going to do it. Because I thought, well, anybody with a stack of books can talk about what's in the work. And I wanted to do that. And I could, I felt I could give some kind of introduction to the art as well, although I wasn't as accomplished in doing that. And somebody else should do a biography that just looks at the art. But I did feel like I had an utter belief that in a hundred years in Scotland, people will want to know what it was like to be in a room with this human being. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Such, and, um, and so I asked him if I could do it like that. So half a series of personal portraits, half where he went, where he grew up, what he made and all of that that was a sort of a skip through the work yeah you know even the greatest works only got a few pages but um that was my approach that um i was extremely lucky in the way that that was received it's still a book that's in print and um I, it still helps me in my work working life and my personal life every week people get in contact with mm. me every single week and say I've got something of Alistair's or something I want to share. I didn't know who to share it with. I hope you don't mind me sending it to his biographer. Um, the only other thing to say about after the biography was, because it came out in 2008-9, is that Alistair and I remained friendly. We did more events together afterwards after a break of a year or two or so. And he understood that the whole thing needed to be independent, so he didn't read it before it was published. Right. So when it was reviewed in The Guardian, when it came out, he also wrote a review of his own, having read it for the first time. So he was always sort of trying to surprise you and be playful, but critical and disarming and all sorts of things at yeah. the same time. Um, so they, they published these two reviews at the same time, one on either side of the page. Uh, and um, Alistair was extremely gracious, even when the book was critical, because I think he understood it needed to be. Mm -hmm. At the end of his life, we were talking about doing another conference in Glasgow and doing things where I would be able to be involved, but where I wasn't making myself a character in Alistair's life anymore. There was, would see me in a role as facilitator, basically. Yeah. Uh, or facilitator slash cheerleader, um, which is what I am now, doing things yeah, like this. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to fill the room with interesting people who are not me, uh, and who will be able to give their own views and add to the conversation, because I think Alistair's work um, rewards that. You've just given me a flashback to Fleck, is that the, uh -huh, the play? The play, and you and him doing parts of it at uh -huh. Glasgow Uni. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I think I had the smallest part in that. That was also a nod and a wink from him. Uh, yeah, he gave himself all the best lines as the devil, and we did. In fact, oh my goodness, I've forgotten these things. So a whole slew of Scottish writers right. got sent out to Canada to, to the Toronto Book Festival, uh, and um, everybody was playing parts in Fleck. So it cost this huge amount of money and we went played to this huge audience and there were maybe 25 of us lined up and anybody who was anybody that was interesting in Scottish literature at the time or was had associations with Alistair was there. And we did it again at the Edinburgh Book Festival That's for 600 people. Yeah. And then we did it again in the Oran Moor. Uh -huh. We're not always with the same uh, cast. I think Will Self was Fleck in one of the productions and uh, couldn't do it for one of the others. But... Um, even there you could see what people would do out of affection for Alistair yeah, that's right. because they couldn't get that play staged yeah. <laughs> anywhere, nowhere would put it on lots of people didn't think it was good enough but he could gather 25 Scottish writers yeah. 
to play the parts and just read out the lines. He could fill any room that you could imagine and people would gladly pay tickets just for a reading of it. And there were all sorts of favours called in here, there and everywhere to add music and all sorts of things. So Fleck was never produced as a play in Alice's lifetime, but we had these amazing performances because you know, A.L. Kennedy will go, well, obviously I wouldn't do that for anyone else, but sure, I'll do it for yeah. Alistair. And that's what it was like. Yeah, that was exactly what it was like. Um, and you always sense that. I was a tiny character in this mm. story, and he was always like, hundreds of times more important to me than I was to him. I think it's always important to repeat that. But it did give me a window into just being able to observe how others yeah. engaged with him and how they responded to his personality, which was sometimes a mixture of looking up at him and down at him at the same time you know deifying him as a kind of genius but also saying you know isn't he ridiculous he hasn't done his hair and he's got pajamas you can see underneath his trousers or whatever yeah. and he played up to that to an extent well, um, uh, as I'm certain you have seen but um, that was all part of this sort of wider picture where you could see that his way of being generous and insisting on democratising in whatever project he was working on that um, people were willing to do anything for him. And a couple of things that you said uh, struck me. One, um, this idea of how Alison would be in a digital world, as you've hinted at, you know, when he could, he didn't turn his own computer on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he never pushed the button to yeah. actually turn it on. And, um, but a, the, another thing was this, trying to get the 50-50 between the art and, uh, and the writing. Because in my experience, when I was working as one of his secretaries, that's how he, his day was. Uh -huh. The morning would be writing, uh -huh. and then you would be there to 12 o'clock, and then someone okay. would come in to help him with his art, and that would be the afternoon, and then yeah. he'd finish at five or whatever. Uh -huh. Yeah, I think he was a little bit stricter after sort of 20, 2008, right. 2010, about that. Was certain uh, there was also more in terms of art commissioning in the last decade of his life. Yeah, he was forever doing things in earlier years where there was absolutely no prospect of anybody being interested in it, mm. and it was that was partly a cumulative effect about just his literary reputation. So people would learn he was an artist through the writing, and so more commissions came to him in those later years. Um, but he also he got the balance in his view. He got the balance all wrong for decades because suddenly there was all this interest in his writing. He became like an overnight success at the age of 50. And then suddenly there was this absolute rash of publications. But for him, he always wanted to keep that balance between what he called the freeing physical exercise of painting, mm -hmm. where he wasn't really engaging the brain in any direct and obvious way. Of course he was, but he didn't feel like he was. He just yeah. felt, I've got to paint this next bit, or can that thing be improved? Um, it was liberating for him in a way that writing wasn't. That was mentally exhausting and didn't, he wasn't moving anywhere physically. Um, and so in later years, as I understand it anyway, he was being a little bit more strict about which time was for which practice. Yeah. When I worked for him, it would often be a nine to five and all week. Um, and sometimes you'd be there at the weekends mm -hmm. and God knows when he did his art. Um, uh, yeah, it was more, more compartmentalised when I was there, uh -huh. definitely. It was like you were there for a the morning. And then you know it'd be half in the afternoon, or vice versa. Yeah. You know it wasn't that strict. Uh, and yeah, often a few weekend shifts as well. I mean, there's a long, there's a long tradition of of people that work with Alistair over that those extended periods, and um, his working practices did change a little bit, mm. but the basic principle didn't, which was that he was dependent on others, um, and a part of him enjoyed being dependent on others. Mm -hmm. 
and it, it sort of set boundaries and limitations, but also he sort of created a situation where he could get away with working in the way that he wanted to work without any compromise. Mm -hmm. um, and although he never made any money, the, as he got older and his reputation got bigger, there were more opportunities for him to be able to create that working circumstance without any compromise. Um, when he was younger, that was much, much more difficult. Do you think there was a, a kind of switch in the balance as to how he was known, and it was more for his murals, you know, something as public as the Hellhead Underground and things yeah. like that, than perhaps for his... Because his latter books weren't necessarily greatly received. I'm thinking Old Men in Love. Uh, yeah, Old Men in Love was mixed. Um, I, having worked on that one, thought it was better than it was, because I was close up to it um, at the time, and... With the passage of the years, I'm yeah. not. I'm not sure. Uh, that was originated in three old plays and had some new stuff stuck together on it. Um, that was often the way he worked, actually. Mm. But yeah, Old Man in Love wasn't his finest work. But um, you know, the 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 major work of his later years that was great were the compendium of you know he when he was a teenager he scribbled in his diaries that now in the National Library of Scotland I want to make one big novel, one massive book of collected stories which he published in 2012 yeah. through One Collected Verses, which he published, One Collected Plays, mm -hmm. which he published, you know, those, and One Collected Nonfiction mm -hmm. of Me and Others, which you worked on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and which I still use with students and has been republished by Canongate recently and was an amazing document. It's just, it's a collected document over many decades yeah. of things that people hadn't always read. Um, so... Uh, and also there was the Dante project, which was incredible That's, right at the very end yeah. of his life after he came out of a coma. Got it. Yeah. God damn it. Um, so there was good work towards the end, but there were big chunks of that last sort of 15 or 20 years where he knew he, he felt he'd done his major writing work. Yeah. Whereas he didn't feel he'd done his major artwork because so many of his murals had been knocked down mm. um, and they were remade um, in R and more. I mean, Saoirse's role in that is really very significant because nobody it can't be overstated really it's hard for people to imagine now but even 15 years ago you couldn't find anybody who wasn't already a pal of least of, um, of Alistair's that um, would say that his artwork was great he wasn't just a footnote in British art or in European art but in Scottish art you mm. couldn't find a single painting of him in any Scottish gallery yeah. 15 years ago that's utterly transformed now he's in Tate London, uh, every major Scottish gallery. Um, there's the Domestic Bliss at Goma at the moment, which we'll also visit um, uh, as part of the conference. Um, all of those things came about because Saoirse took on all of the work and started digitising it, photographing it, getting a record of everything, even things that were now knocked down or partially destroyed or needed to be restored. And once you could see that work and people started having the chance to go to exhibitions uh, that were just about the visual art and didn't depend on that literary reputation all of a sudden it was obvious how big that contribution was and there's been this huge mushrooming in value of the visual art mm -hmm. um, which is so fascinating to see how that change has happened and he just got nowhere with that until he was in the 70s yeah incredible really it's really interesting because when you think about the focus on Glasgow uh, artists and figurative artists in particular in the kind of mid to late 80s and the early 90s, the Glasgow boys and uh, Harrison and all, yeah. but he was nowhere to be seen. Nowhere, nowhere. And when I was researching my biography, I found one book on 70s and 80s Scottish art that had 
two pages that were Alistair's. Um, and it was this big Cal Cadden's landscape um, with figures, which is great. But it was the cover of Lanark, one yeah. of the editions. And he was still introduced as the author of Lanark. Mm-hmm. Um, to an extent, there's always that sort of issue when somebody is working across different forms and that you might be likely to be known for one more than the other. But even when Alistair's art on rare occasion was acknowledged, it was always kind of patronised. Mm. And there's something about Orimore itself, just the size and impact and coherence of that, yeah. how it represents his approach to not just making imagined objects, but to like the way that he saw humanity. There's something coherent and clear and vast there that I think has helped to transform the reputation. Um, so is that it's almost a scale uh-huh. type of thing? Yeah. yeah, it's partly about its scale. It has to be its but, bigness. Because you used to hear, and I don't know how um, urban myth like this was, that people would find Alistair Grey murals on flats they'd moved into uh-huh. under coats of paint yeah. and wallpaper and stuff. Yeah, that's a real thing. There was um, uh, the director that did the BBC documentary about Alistair for his 80th birthday, Kevin Cameron. Yeah. In 2001, did this documentary called Unlikely Murals Mostly, which partly went into Glasgow houses and went, oh, this is where they found underneath the paint Alistair's Jonah and the Whale from 1968 or something. Um, and Alistair went back in and restored it. Mm-hmm. A large part of what he spent the back end of his life doing, rather than concentrating on his literary works, as you rightly pointed out, um, was to go back and restore and remake things that had been lost. It's so important that a big part of what he was doing always was recording Glasgow's disappearing past, by which he meant its people and places, and each of each time he did that, he was asserting the you know the validity of ordinary Glaswegians. Yeah, and um, that was like, utterly consistent. So it made sense that if somebody phoned him up and said, "Oh, I've just moved into this flat, uh, and on the stairwell there's a, I think a phantasmagoria that's yours," and he would be round there in a flash with an assistant going right. Okay, well, obviously I can do this much better now. <laughs> you know, and then you wouldn't get rid of him for weeks and weeks and months. Um, and this woman who found Jonah and the Whale in her bedroom. Um, and in, with such density as well. I think lots of people would react against that and go, oh my God, I can't possibly have that this here. But she embraced it. And Alistair came by with Robert Salmon, who's his collaborator, and redid the whole thing. That's incredible. It is, isn't it? But... but marginalisation, uh, destruction of Alistair's murals, like all of these things were absolutely central to his working life over decades. Yeah. See, when they, he did his first paid mural was the uh, ceiling of a synagogue mm-hmm. on the south side in Glasgow. Do you know this story? No, I don't think okay. so. I knew that's what it was, right, but I don't yeah. know the story behind okay. it. Okay, so the rabbis, bless them, weren't very keen on figures. In Judaism, we're not really into having figures around in the uh, places of worship. Uh-huh. You know, even God shouldn't be shown, apparently. So uh, they had to come to some agreement with Alistair that, and eventually they decided they would just do clouds. He just did a cloudscape on this really low ceiling. And it's absolutely extraordinary. And then the Jewish community in Glasgow was really small and people moved out and the synagogue shut down. And they took the entire ceiling down, plank by plank, and brought it to his front door in case he wanted it. I mean, that is just a perfect example of what it was like in Alistair's long projects that 
he knew were always a risk because he knew that they could always be knocked yeah, down. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, even that consideration from the, <laughs> although it was kind of bizarre, it was a sort of gesture of generosity as well in that the, the community knew that he'd put all of this love and effort into this thing that had to be destroyed. I mean, he looked at them like they were mad and went, what do you mean, do I want it? Now put it in the bin. So is that what happened? Uh, yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, they were just destroyed in the end. But but if you go back to his later big landscapes, cloudscapes, yeah. future uh, sections of the Oran Moor, you can see the same thing. Yeah. He's always recreating those things. Um, and it was the same as the approach to when he was the um, artist recorder at People's Palace. You know, he was choosing to paint people and places who would otherwise not have been recorded. Mm -hmm. Choosing to go, okay, now I'll do Alexander Hamilton of the Unemployed. He was doing the great and the good as well, he had to, but those were conscious choices about how Glasgow's history would be framed and then remembered. He did Templeton's carpet factory before it was shut down. Mm. All of these places were about the disappearing city. Um, And that really interested me too. There was something about recording in paint again and again and again things that he thought that otherwise would be lost and that went on kind of right to the very end you know i know the um park that were under that was under threat kind of near mary hill and he was still you know involved with a lot of these um campaigns to keep certain spaces and public spaces going yeah yeah he was i mean he was a sort of funny reluctant campaigner uh i've got a photograph in my office strathclyde uh, of Alistair being arrested by the police at some uh, nuclear protest at Fastlane. <laughs> and he's got this most just utterly befuddled expression on his face as he's being carted away by policemen who are obviously very reluctant to take him away but felt they had to. Um, he always said that he hated being part of a big group and protesting about things because he always felt like he disagreed with some people or was uncomfortable yeah, or, sure. you know, that sometimes arguments were too simplistic and he never really felt comfortable marching with anybody and yet he sometimes did these things out of guilt because he said he he would have felt worse otherwise so he was on the 2003 famous march in glasgow against the iraq war Mm. and wrote about it um in the ends of our tethers one of the books that i was his secretary for and he you know protested against fast lane and was involved in all these campaigns like you say but he was never comfortable with it i mean he always felt icky about it yeah um but he felt like it was his you know moral obligation i think he was maybe um more comfortable with a stiff a strongly worded letter yes that would definitely be kind of thing. i mean that's where all the political books came out of as yeah. well he wrote four books for independence yeah um and uh they weren't always better than the last one <laughs> my view was that the early one earlier ones uh made a, a stronger argument but he felt like he had to keep going back to that yeah. territory and had to keep making that case or else he would have felt guilty otherwise mm. so he was often driven by guilt with yeah. these things that were about campaigns um, yeah and it continues to leave his mark on the city i, I was recently when i went to the alison gray archive i took a walk around the clay pits area mm. of, beside the canal beside the fourth and clay canal and there's steps with his quotes on them and things yeah, like that. So yeah. are there other places that um, people could see his work around the city? Yes, okay, so I'm glad you mentioned that one, and that is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, and I went to the archive a few weeks ago for us to do some recording. Um, I took a walk up there and for the first time was able to walk through the, um, the lettering, and of course it's his own font, mm-hmm. so it's distinguished uh, partly by that. Um, 
I think Sorsha's working on multiple sort of future places where the work might be consistently available. But for those that um, haven't already seen them, there's the three murals in the ubiquitous chip, yeah. where, which we'll also be visiting at the conference, which was made over decades. Um, uh, there's the Hillhead subway mural, and um, there is Oren Moore. Um, you've mentioned the Garscube links there. At the moment, Goma has some of his artist recorder work on um, on display. That's, they bought quite a few of those, and again, we'll be visiting there at the, at the conference. Um, and then um, there are lots of future things that are planned that I probably wow. can't say yet. Excellent. But yeah, but there's lots and lots in the city, and particularly in and around the city centre in West End. Sure. And now that uh, you've you see you went to the conference um, ten years ago, and it made you realise that there was more of an international appreciation than perhaps you thought otherwise. Yeah. And is that something that you've are there other things that you now consider looking at the work and your time working with Alistair, uh, you know, that have only kind of recently come to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, the blindingly obvious thing to say about working with people from other countries is that they come with different perspectives, mm -hmm. and that's nearly always positive for any interrogation. I think that the main thing that I would say about how my own view has changed by interacting with those in Italy and Switzerland and Croatia and France that are interested in Alistair's work is that yes, there's an element of uh, Scottophile-ness mm -hmm. to it, if that's a word. Mm -hmm. um, you know, these are often people who have a love for Scottish culture more broadly. But also, there's a real value in seeing the work independent of its national context. Yes. Now, Alistair was always so incredibly closely associated with the development of Scottish literature in the 20th century and mm -hmm. transforming that. Um, that was something Edwin Morgan said, not me. And um, also because he was so closely associated with the independence movement. Um, and also because the cliche was, although it wasn't always true, that he was much more popular in Scotland than he was in England. Mm -hmm. In fact, novels like Poor Things, which was a big award winner in England, proved that's not the case. And he was always very well reviewed in England. But he was often seen as too Scottish for the English, which is nonsense. Mm -hmm. Um, but you can see through, from working with people from other countries that actually the work stands on its own within a European context yeah. and an international context. It's not just national borders that allow us to understand creative work. Yeah. I mean, again, I may be being blind in the obvious, but perhaps because I'd been in and around Glasgow and seen Alistair with you know the same old characters who were all incredibly important parts of that literary landscape, but they're not everything. So what I'm trying to say is something like, Yes, of course, you can see Alistair within the context of people like Liz Lockett and James Kelman and Tom Leonard and Agnes Owens and many other great writers of that period. But that's not the only context in which to see him no. and, and going much further than the obvious names. Bernard McLaverty is another mm -hmm. one who was, of course, a hugely important part of the writing of Poor Things. Um, by going way beyond that, you see so much more in the work. And I think the main thing that I've learned is to not automatically see everything through a Scottish lens. No, absolutely. I mean, it's always present, and so it should be. But you can also be kind of liberated from it as well by not just comparing him to everyone that's come out of this country. And I think you could say that, Neil, about all the names you mentioned. They yeah, yeah. Are, each of them yeah. have an international reach. Absolutely, yeah. That maybe we um, don't realise at times. Yeah, and that's maybe just geography. Yeah, it could you know? be. Um, and because within such a small geographical area um, and such a you know vibrant, tight literary culture that, that Scotland has 
often they've been discussed together or put yeah. together or assumed to be seen in the same context. Whereas you know, Bernard's work or Liz's work or James' work could be seen you know, in incredibly vibrant ways and ways that, that don't even mention the others. Yes, um, It's because of their dominance and their impact. And because they were almost years. all in what I've written at the yeah. same time at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so it's for good reason that that has been, uh, that they've often been seen that way but I'm hoping things like this conference will encourage us to yeah. take it, you know, take it way beyond. Yeah, it's that, you know, Yeah. So going back to the conference, if you could just remind people how to register and you know how they can maybe keep updated with news and events. Yeah, definitely. So um, the Twitter handle for the conference is at Imagined Making, um, and I'm at Rog Glass. Um, uh, that's probably the most obvious and easiest place to be able to get a hold of the registration information and if we can put it on the page for the podcast as well that would be great there's a whole website which is through University of Strathclyde where I am the I've not even mentioned but I'm the convener of the Emlet in creative writing there and the whole academic bit in the university bit is being hosted by Strathclyde Um, so it's through their website that you register for the whole two days there you can either register online so you can watch from anywhere in the world um, and that is £25 for the two days complete. Um, it's also £25 for students or unwaged or any discounts. Uh, which there are lots of different types. And for uh, folk with full-time jobs, it's £50 over the two days and nights. Mm-hmm. So that would include things like the art exhibition and the readings and the creative commissions and the R and more and seeing all the murals and visiting the museum and the archives, like all yeah. of that. Um, which is a fraction of what it would usually be for a conference of this type. It certainly is. Um, you can't really do an Alistair Gray uh, conference while surely offending Alistair rolling over in his grave that you're charging people through the notes that come to it. Uh, so we just have to make it busy, and it's, it's looking like it's going to be really busy. I'm, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Fantastic. We will put all of those links on the website, but uh, I think it's going to be uh, an incredible weekend. I'm really looking forward to it. Rog, lovely to see you. Thank you. You didn't even make me cry, Ali. <laughs> Wait till so the microphone. To see you. That sounds really threatening. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for having me. And Thank we'll you. be back soon with someone completely different. Cheers. Mm-hmm.